The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you be our guest. Service times are 9 and 11 a.m. We hope you'd consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting a donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's Word. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to ACF Church. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here. If you're new, uh, welcome. We just hope that you feel comfortable today, that uh, this is a place that you can come and learn and grow with us. Uh, Before we get into the message here today, I want to first draw your attention to the cards on your seat. Can you guys pull out those cards real quick? You guys may have seen that on your seat. I want to talk about that for a second. Last week, if you weren't here, we made a big announcement for ACF Church. We are going to be launching a Wednesday night church plant. And so what this looks like is we're going to be doing the same service as Sunday morning on a different day. It's going to be the first service of the week. And so we'll be launching a new worship set and a new sermon and new series. We'll all start now on Wednesday, starting September 9th. And so this is a big step for us as a church. It's a, it's a big, uh, big step of faith to reach our city in a new way. And the goal, we're calling it a church plant because the goal is to reach a whole segment of our population that can't go to church on the weekends. It's really an unreached people group in our area is the weekend warriors, the people that are out vacationing on the weekends, the people that are working and can't ever come to church. Um, you also, many of you guys are out of town. I know you guys like to snow machine in the winter. You like to get out and hike and uh, maybe you're gone on the weekend and Wednesday would be a better day for your family. So here's what we're looking for is we're looking for a commitment from you. Uh, we would like to get a crowd of people that would like to be part of the launch team for this new church plant. Just like any church plant, we need volunteers, and we need a launch team, a group of people that would say, hey, we want to be a part of this. We're going to show up every week. We're going to bring our kids. We're going to bring our neighbors and friends, and we're going to make this Wednesday night our church home. And so I don't know about you. I personally love church on the, on the weeknights, on, a, on an evening. There's something different about an evening service that's kind of fun. And so I'm looking forward to doing this with you guys. Uh, it's, it's a step of faith for us because we know that some people from Sunday morning uh, hopefully a good group of people will be going on Wednesday night, and that's going to open up some, some space here. Part of the deal is this. As you guys are seeing, people are still kind of coming in, and we're just running out of room at 11 o'clock, and we haven't even hit fall yet. And so part of this is a need uh, here to continue to make space so that people in our community can hear about Jesus. As you invite your friends, we want you to know that there's going to be a space for them to sit down. That's, that's always a good thing, right? Hey, come to church. There's no room for you. Sorry. Uh, a little embarrassing. So we want to make a space for you to invite your friends and continue to reach our city. So uh, fill that out and check that box if you'd like to be a part of that. And you can throw it in the offering or in the God box in the back as you leave today. So we'd love your involvement with that. But we are in a series called American Jesus. This is our second week in this series. Last week, we talked about a perception of Jesus, and we called him Prosperity Jesus. And this is the Jesus that's here to make you comfortable. He's the Jesus that's here to make you feel good, to make you financially succeed. And so we talked about how there's this perception that that's what Jesus is about, and how really in the kingdom of God, there are no rich and there are no poor. There are only generous and greedy. And so we challenged all of us to be generous, generous in our faith, generous in our forgiveness, generous in our finances. And, and so I hope you had time this week to be generous in all of those ways. I'm sure uh, maybe it wasn't that enjoyable for some of you, but uh, this is a process of learning and growing. And this series is really all about confronting some of the twisted views that we have on Jesus. Uh, if we asked a hundred people in this room, who is Jesus Christ? We'd probably get a hundred different answers based on your church background, uh, based on what you've read, based on the Christians that you've interacted with. And so we want to come together and maybe dismantle some of those perspectives. Because Jesus, he's a pretty famous guy, right? A lot of people know the name of Jesus. They've heard about him, which means there's a lot of opinions. And uh, just like any famous person, I think people think they know him when they don't really know him. You know what I mean? It's like you guys are, you guys are watching the political race. It's getting, already getting bad, and it's going to get worse. But one thing that I see is people think that they know these people uh, as they watch the debates and as they see things on the news. And the reality is we just don't know them personally. And maybe as we sat down across from them with a cup of coffee, we'd end up with a different opinion about them. 
And Jesus is really this way. As you get to know him, as you spend time with him, as you read his word and spend time with his people, I think that you start to get to know him in, in a deeper way. Next week, we're talking about prepper Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus that's just kind of huddling in the corner, trying to hide from the dirty world, uh, trying to protect his family. He's building a bunker underneath his house, you know, and stockpiling guns and ammo, right? That kind of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that perspective next week. But this week, we're going to talk about passive Jesus. Passive Jesus. This is a definition of Jesus that would define him like this. Jesus is kind of a nice guy. He's maybe the kind of guy you want to sit down uh, with coffee. He's probably a hugger, right? He's, he's a cuddly kind of guy. He's really kind. He's really nice. Uh, doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. Doesn't want to make a scene. Uh, basically, he's the friend that you can ignore for six months and then call and they still want to hang out with you, right? He's that, he's that guy that's always here for you. Basically, he's, he's a pushover, right? Jesus the pushover is the perspective that we're going to, we're going to kind of, uh, go through scripture today and, and challenge that a little bit. And so if you want to open up to Hebrews chapter six, we're going to be walking through a, a sizable chunk of Scripture this morning. If you don't know where the book of Hebrews is or you don't have a Bible, you can read it on the screen behind me or you can grab the Bible in front of you. Um, or you can look at the one person next to you. They've probably got it pulled up too. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Let me read this for us. It says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt." For the land that drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Therefore we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Good stuff. Let's pray as we open God's word today. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this crowd of people and these few moments that we have together to explore your word. God, I pray that we could be fully present in this moment. Many of us are distracted by what's supposed to happen tomorrow or maybe what happened yesterday, God, but could we just be here together for a few minutes, right where we're at, God, with all of our experiences and all of our struggles, with all of our worries and concerns, God, could we just bring that to the table today and then be moved by you? God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we have been on a journey as a family to get to know our neighbors. We got here a little over six years ago, I guess almost seven years ago, into Alaska, and we didn't know anybody, and so the process began of introducing ourselves to our neighbors, getting to know them slowly, and we've been getting better and better at this. Last year, our church launched what was called the Block Party Initiative, where the church provides a, a big grill and a bounce house and all the stuff for a block party, and then you provide the people, invite your whole neighborhood, and our neighborhood really received it well. People were really excited, you know, and they were like, this is how a neighborhood's supposed to feel. It's like we're, we're made to be in community, and I'm like, I know where that comes from, right? And so people really loved it, and so we, we started doing these block parties and getting to know our neighbors, and uh, one neighbor across the street I've been getting to know, and the other day I was outside in front of my house and I was trying to figure out a way to pipe in my, my grill to my natural gas so I didn't have to buy propane tanks. And so anyway, he saw me doing this and he came over and he's like, I have done this. Let me show you how. So he, he gave me the lowdown and we got to uh, spend some time together there. And so developing a relationship with people, slowly getting to know our neighbors. And we were on a walk the other day. Uh, it's been maybe a month, month and a half ago. And we're at the other end of our walk, probably a mile from the house, and I get a phone call from my next-door neighbor, different guy. And he doesn't call me often. We've got our phone numbers for emergency situations. And so I thought, okay, let's see what this is about. I answer the phone, and he says, Brian. And I said, yeah. And he says, are you home? And I said, 
no. And he said, well, go home. Your house is on fire. And I was like, what? Is this a joke, you know? And, and he's like, your house is on fire, Brian. Go home. And so I, I start running, and I got Amanda with the kids, and she's got like a kid over her shoulder, and she's dragging the others, right? And so we're, we're, we're trying to get to the house, and it's taking forever, and this woman's pulling out of her driveway. And so I pound on her window. I'm like, hey, can you give me a ride to my house? It's on fire. And she's like, ah, okay, you know. I could be some psycho trying to get into her car. She doesn't know. And she's like, okay. And so she drives me around the block, and we get around the corner, and sure enough, there's fire trucks, and there's firemen everywhere. All my neighbors are outside, and, you know, everybody's coming out of their houses, police cars, and smoke coming out of my garage. I'm like, what happened? So here comes Amanda. She's running. She didn't get in the car, so she's got the kids. And uh, my other neighbor comes out, and she's like, oh, I'll take the kids. I'll take the kids. She's like, I got a pirated version of home. I can show it to them. And so she takes them inside and shows them home. And so she's got my children, and my, my wife and I are just, like, looking at the house, like, what what happened? And, you know, uh, neighbors are coming out. And do we have a picture of, of what that scene kind of looked like with all the... Yeah, so this is kind of what I came out with. She's like a fireman. That's my house in the background. And um, I'm like, what happened? And so the fireman comes up and he's like, well, here's what's go- going on. Your garage lit on fire. And uh, he said, we figured out it came from your refrigerator. Your refrigerator in your garage, the wiring sparked and, and uh, lit a piece of plastic on fire and it lit on fire. And then here comes my other neighbor, the guy that had been talking to me about the grill. And so he goes, he goes, Brian, oh man, I, he said, I, I came out of my house. I saw it all happen. He said, I, I saw this mushroom cloud go up into the sky of smoke. And then I came out and I saw your house was on fire. So he said, I called 911. And then he said, I ran over to the driveway and I saw the flames coming out. So I ran around the back of the house to the gas shut off. He said, I shut off your gas because I know where that's at. And so then he stepped over here and he shut off the power to the house. Then he ran around front and he noticed my sprinkler was on. So he broke off the sprinkler head and he's like spraying the fire, trying to put it out. And so he's spraying it down and it actually starts diminishing. And the fire gets out to the point that he runs past my car through the garage, finds the keys to the car on the shelf next to the garage door, jumps in the car, backs the car out of the garage, and right about then the fire department shows up and he's like, I, I got this, right? He's <laughs> like, I got taken care of. I mean, he pretty much had the whole thing done and taken out. And so, I don't know if you see the next picture. It was just a, it kind of burned up into the ceiling and made a mess of all this stuff. And it was very hot up above, you know, things melt at this certain fire line. And so there's all kinds of weird melty plastic up in my ceiling. And anyway, interesting experience. And so they're going, what happened? And, and he goes, well, the garage door was open. I saw the, the, the smoke. And I said, no, the garage door wasn't open. He goes, yeah, no, I, the garage door was open. We go, no, we stopped here for five minutes while we're setting up the sprinkler, shut the garage door. It was closed. So it turns out, this is kind of a serendip- serendipitous side note, but that the wires on my garage door opener melted together, which crossed and opened the garage door, which notified the neighbor that the place was on fire before it burned up through the middle of my house. So anyway, if there was ever an argument I could make to get to know your neighbors, this would be it. I mean, it could save your house, I'm telling you. And so this guy, I just couldn't believe it. He comes over, he goes, man, I just, I, I wanted to help. And, and I called the fire department. I didn't know what to do. So I tried to put the fire out. And he goes, I, I jumped in your car. I hope it's okay that I started your car. I'm like, yes, anytime my house is on fire, you want to pull the car out. That's okay by me, right? And so anyway, it was just, it was this crazy moment. I'm looking at this guy. I need to buy him a gift or something. Um, but I, I should do that. That'd be really nice. But this guy just leaned into our circumstances, right? I mean, this is like super neighbor. I mean, it's one thing to just call the fire department. I mean, even neighbors that don't like you would call the def- fire department, right? I mean, it's like, oh, the house is on fire. It could catch my house on fire, so I better, you know, let the fire department know. I, but this kind of neighborly activity is just unheard of. Just saving our house, risking his health and well-being for us. But have you ever been in a circumstance like that where... You know, it's a fight or flight situation where you've got to make a decision. If you're going to lean into this, if you're going to do something, or if you're not. If you're going to walk on by. See, what I don't know is if there was a neighbor that saw it and was like, oh, that's bad, right? I don't know if somebody was walking by and ignored it. But this guy decided to lean into it. And as you think about Jesus, is this how you view Jesus? Do you view Jesus as somebody who's willing to lean into circumstances? I mean, would you see Jesus as the guy that would walk by and be like, Oh, we should pray for that house. We should just 
pray that the fire would go out. You know, we should just stop for a minute and, and, you know, and contemplate what might happen to the house and how the families. I mean, how do you view Jesus or do you see him being willing to, to rush into this situation, possibly to, uh, to, to go into somebody's house, maybe even to offend somebody uh, for the sake of whatever needs to be done? So here's my question for you. Was Jesus passive? Was he passive? And so we're going to go to a few different passages to argue these points uh, that, that people many times use. This is the most popular passage people use to argue that Jesus was really passive. It's Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 27. I'm just going to read this for you real quick. Uh, this is the turn your, the other cheek passage. You guys know this one, right? The turn the other cheek passage. It says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Okay, so this passage makes a lot of, a lot of guys really uncomfortable, right? Because we think, I don't like that. Jesus is being very figurative. You know, like he probably doesn't really mean it. Because I can defend myself and I need to defend myself. So what is he really saying? Is he saying, listen, let people rob you, let them beat you. If you're in a situation of abuse, you should stay in that situation of abuse. If, uh, if you're about to be robbed, you should just open the door and let them in, you know, show them where all the valuables are maybe. Uh, what kind of, what is he talking about here? I, I've even heard people argue to say that, that if you lock your door, you're literally saying that you're not being faithful to God, not believing that God uh, has this all under control, which those people obviously don't have daughters, right? Because I'm locking my door. I'll tell you that. You turn the handle late at night, it's going to be locked and a gun on the other side. But anyway, that's a different thing. So we, uh, we don't believe that we shouldn't lock our doors. What is he actually saying here? I believe that he's challenging a heart of retaliation. You guys know what a heart of retaliation is? This is, this is a kind of perspective that when something is done to you, you've been maybe wrongfully accused, maybe somebody has hurt you, maybe somebody's taking something from you, you well up with this like, do you know who I am? You can't do that to me. I don't deserve this. You know, I drive a Dodge Stratus. You know, like I don't know what kind of, do you know who I am? And, and I don't deserve this kind of behavior. And he's saying to these people, he's saying, don't let anybody steal an opportunity for you to show them what the kingdom of God is like. Don't let anybody steal an opportunity from you. Even in a situation like this, you need to be thinking through a different lens. He's not saying that you should never lock your door. He's not saying that if you're being abused or if somebody's hurting you, you shouldn't change your circumstances. Certainly, I would encourage you, please, change your circumstances. He's saying... Think in terms of the kingdom of God. Think in terms of what God is doing on this earth. What you're doing in this moment, how you respond, does this present Jesus to people? Does this show them what the kingdom is like? And this is hard, right? Come on, let's be honest. This is really difficult. I mean, some of you already today have had this feeling well up inside of you, like somebody got your coffee wrong, right? And you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm mad about this. Do you know who I am? This is difficult to think in these terms when you feel like you have been mistreated in some way or another. I mentioned that I'm working on the garage, and um, part of this process is blowing insulation up into my ceiling. Anybody done this? This is hor- It's a horrible thing. Oh, God bless you guys, because it's bad. And so you have to rent this 600-pound reverse vacuum cleaner from, uh, you know, a hardware store, and you, you throw all the stuff in there, and you blow it up the ceiling. So I'm in South Anchorage, rent this machine, uh, just because I was right there by one of their locations. Came out to Eagle River, uh, Chugiak, where we live, blew in the insulation, came back in Anchorage, and they've got, a, they've got a closer location. So I stopped into the store to drop off this big, huge machine that I never want to see again. And I go inside, and the guy's at the counter, and I'm, he's like, oh, you return in one of these things? I'm like, yeah, here it is. It's, it's huge. Take it away from me. And he goes, okay, I'm going to open my book and look at the reservations. And um, he, I go, no, that's, uh, it's not going to be in there. I said, I, I rented it from South Anchorage. And he looks at me, and he goes, dude, this ain't Redbox. <laughs> you got to drop that off at South Anchorage, man. And I'm like, dude, I'm telling you what, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm stressed. I'm not a violent guy, I'll tell you this. But 
I didn't know if I should laugh or punch him in the throat. I really, I was like, dude. And it was one of those, like, you know, everything, you just start to boil and your head gets hot. And you're going, bro, you don't know. My house just lit on fire. And I'm just not happy about anything. And, and, and it, was, it was hard, right? And so I kind of smiled. And I was like, thanks. I'll go to South Anchorage. And walked out of there and didn't say anything stupid, thank God. And, and uh, it, it's difficult, right? You guys have maybe been through this this week. You've got a situation right on your mind. You're like, yeah, I know how that feels. It, it is very difficult to do this. When you do that, when you successfully hold back, when you successfully um, don't take the opportunity to make a fool of yourself, is that passive? I think it's a long ways from passive. I think, it's, I think it takes a lot of intentionality to do this. I believe that's what's being said in this passage. And as we look at Jesus' life, he had this ability to balance really well. And he had this ability, he wasn't passive, he didn't walk by things, but he, had, he would, he would kind of push buttons but never pick a fight. You guys know the difference? Like, just his lifestyle would push people's buttons just because of who he was and what he did. But he never picked a fight. He never tried to start something. That's how Jesus lived. He didn't try to make trouble. But he did things like, like picking weed on Sunday. Wheat, not weed, sorry. Wheat <laughs> on Sunday. We are in Alaska. That's a second pot reference in two weeks. Anyway, sorry about that. So, wheat on Sunday. He picks wheat on Sunday. It still sounds like it, doesn't it? Wheat on Sunday. And what we read in Scripture is that he was really criticized for this. He was really criticized because in this time, the law would have been such that, that uh, obviously the Sabbath is a big deal, and so they wanted to respect the Sabbath, but they had taken this to the nth degree where you couldn't even pick wheat on Sunday because it would be considered work. And so Jesus, with his disciples, walks through this field, and as he's walking through the field, they start picking up wheat, and people see them, and they start criticizing them. And do you, here, Here's a question. Do you think Jesus could have picked it on Saturday night? Sure. Do you think that he could have picked it on uh, Monday? Certainly. Do you think he could have maybe fasted that day? He's gone 40 days. Certainly he can do a day. Absolutely. So do you think it was intentional that he did this on Sunday? <laughs> Absolutely. Jesus has this way of picking at the religious at those that would tie up heavy burdens on people. And so he did things like that. He did things like healing on the Sabbath. He intentionally did these things to, to pick at the, the way that they viewed the world, the way that they thought you could get access to God. He built close friendships with the fray of society, the dirty, the broken, the sinful of society. He didn't just go on a, a mission trip for a day or two. He literally made some of the dirtiest of society his closest friends. And this rubbed all kinds of people the wrong way. This is how Jesus lived. It's the opposite of passive. And yet it has an impact that is huge. So second question is this. Was Jesus then aggressive? Okay, Brian, it doesn't seem like he's passive. It seems like everything that he did was intentional. Um, there's a lot of other scriptures we could go to, but was Jesus aggressive? Some people say, yeah, Jesus is a fighter, right? I see my, my Jesus has, you know, he's a carpenter, so he's got, uh, you know, calluses on his hands. He's, he's a guy that can stand up for himself, and I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'll go to John chapter 2. This is, the, this is the temple, the cleansing the temple passage. A lot of people use this as, as a way to explain Jesus as an aggressive man. And... Uh, it says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So this is like a frat party gone wrong, right? This is just craziness. Jesus comes into this situation, and what we envision in our minds is chaos, we see people running and screaming for their lives, pigeons flying, tables, you know, being tipped over, change, Jesus dumping change all over the place. He pulls out this whip, you know, we see Jesus with the whip, we, he's whipping people. I mean, this is the image that we have in our minds of this moment. But let me explain to you what's going on here. In this time, the temple was operating sort of like a bank, like a, like a really messed up bank, 
And so during the Passover, if you wanted to worship at the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice. So people would be bringing their sacrifices to these money changers uh, and, and these priests, and they would look at their sacrifice, and it would, be, it would have to be the best animal, if it was a sheep or something like that. And they would find some kind of flaw in it, and they'd say, this, this sheep isn't good enough to be sacrificed. And they'd say, but over here, we've got a good one to sell you. So they'd sell them a better sheep, not necessarily better, but they'd sell them a better sheep. They'd take their sheep, and then they would sell their sheep to the next guy. And so it was this money-making scam that they had in the temple. The money changers would exchange foreigners' money because they were bringing their money together to, to, to pay a temple tax and to give them their tithes. And so they'd come together, and they would exchange their money at a horrible exchange rate. And so this whole thing was about making money. And, and so some people misunderstand this whole deal, and they... Um, they would say, you shouldn't sell shirts in the lobby of a church because you're turning this place into a den of robbers, you know. It's not really what's going on. It's not really, it's a totally different situation. And it's interesting, in Mark eleven eighteen, right after this, it says, and the chief priests and scribes heard about it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So whatever went down in this moment caused the scribes and the, and the priests to be threatened. It threatened them, and the people were astonished, which is really interesting if you think about it, because if this was just a temper tantrum, if Jesus had just lost his cool and gone crazy for a few minutes, do you think people would be astonished at his teaching? They'd probably just think he was crazy. They'd run away. They'd be like, I don't know what this guy was about, but look at him. He can't even control himself. No, something about what happened here was astonishing to them. You see, when we read this passage, we don't read a few things. We don't read that any of the animals were hurt. We don't, we don't read that any people were actually whipped. If you know anything about a whip, you know whips are very loud and they demand attention. And if you were to make a whip and crack it, you could hear it for hundreds and hundreds of feet. And so people were brought to attention by this noise. So we don't hear of Jesus actually being violent to anybody. And again, so it, it forces you to ask the question, was Jesus aggressive. See, I think Jesus was aggre- acted aggressively in this moment. It was an aggressive act, but I don't believe Jesus as a man was aggressive. I don't think it accurately describes who Jesus was. So how do we describe the real Jesus? I believe the real Jesus wasn't passive or aggressive. He was active. He wasn't passive. He wasn't aggressive. He was active. Jesus did everything with very calculated approaches. He was intentional about everything that he said, everything that he did. And he had this way, this subversive way of doing ministry that caused people to stand up and notice him. He did ministry in the streets with the people, and yet it affected the politics of his day. It affected the government. I mean, can you imagine a church in Eagle River that does ministry in such a way, that loves people in such a way, that cares for our city in such a way that the local government stands up and takes notice. That they're like, okay, I don't know what's going on in ACF Church, but it's going to change the way our city runs for the better. Like, it's going to affect the way our community looks. And we're going to have to change some of the way that we organize because there's a movement happening here. That's how Jesus did things. He offers grace, but he's very clear about sin. You know, the prostitute comes to Jesus. She comes to him humbly, asking for forgiveness. And, and Jesus says this, he, he forgives her, and then he says, go and sin no more, no more. He doesn't say, go and do whatever you want. You know, you're forgiven. Go live like you live. No, he says, do something better. I have better things for you. Reject this old lifestyle. Reject the things that are holding you down, the things that are hurting you, and take something new. I even think in Jesus with his disciples, it's really interesting. He loved these guys, spent time with them. They're his best friends, you know, spending time with them. And they should know who he is. And yet at one point in Matthew chapter 15, he looks at them and he's like, are you guys stupid? Do you guys really not get this? He literally says, are you dull? Like, do you not know who I am? He's telling them this parable. He's sharing them about, with them about the kingdom of God. And yet they just don't get it. So Jesus, and I don't believe that he was trying to be unloving. I believe Jesus had this way of balancing his life. He wasn't just a man of aggression who couldn't control his emotions, who didn't know how to deal with it when he saw something that he didn't think was right. He also wasn't a man that was passive, that would walk by a situation that he needed to lean into. 
an opportunity to show people the kingdom of God. So let's go to this Hebrews passage real quick, and uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through this. This, this letter, it's a, it's a letter to the Jewish people of this time, written about 65 to 70 years after the death of Jesus. And so these people were struggling, and they were immature. And, and in this season of, of life, the life of the church, what they needed to hear was one message, and the message of Hebrews is this, Jesus is better. Whatever it is that you have, Jesus is better. Whatever way you were trying to be acceptable to God, whatever lifestyle change you thought you could make so that God would receive you, Jesus is better. Whatever sacrifices you used to make, Jesus is better. And so these people would have been tempted to go back to their Judaism, back to their old traditions and beliefs because it was easier, because it was going to take less effort than moving on to be like Christ. So Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I have to stop there real quick. So he's saying, let's move on. As, as an immature community, we want to move on to greater things. He said, not laying again a foundation of these things. And he lists these elementary things, you know, elementary things like repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, baptism, laying out of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You know, simple things, elementary things, the basics. And I was reading this and I was like, wow, that's pretty deep stuff. I mean, if the church today could understand the ABCs of Christianity like that, I think we'd be in a better place. These are deep things. These are basics of your faith. Faith in God. Instructions about washings. Hey, when you follow Jesus, you just get baptized. You go public with your faith. Laying out of hands, people think that probably that is referring to the commissioning of new leaders and sending off new people. Resurrection of the dead. This understanding that life's, it's not over when you die. You think maybe dust to dust and, you know, you were created as dust and you go back to the dust. No, there's more to come. There's resurrection to come. And then eternal judgment, which is really important. It's not the part we like to talk about. It's the part that runs people off from churches, but it's an important thing to understand is this understanding of our, of our sin nature that at our core we do, we do the wrong thing. We just do. And at our core that's, if given to my own devices, I'm going to do the wrong thing. And understanding that is important because you can't really get the gospel, you can't understand the good news of Jesus if you don't understand the bad news. And too many people are saying, hey, there's good news, and people are going, that's eh, not that great because I'm pretty awesome. And I don't really need to be saved from much. And he's saying, nope. Nope, none of us are good. Not even one is what the Bible says. Not even one. So we all need grace. So he's saying, move on. And so when he's saying that, does he, does he mean leave these things and go on to other things? That we should just go get deeper and take some Bible studies, you know? Work on our Greek and Hebrew and just learn the Bible more? See, that's the thing. That's the thing, you guys. As you mature... And as we grow as a church, one of the most dangerous things we can do is leave these things. See, he's saying move on and learn other things, but he's not saying let go of the ABCs. Do you ever let go of the ABCs? You better not. You won't learn to read, right? You need the ABCs, and so you don't leave these things. And, and that's how churches get off in the ditch because the core of everything that we do, the motivation for everything that we do, here in a, here in a month on September 27th, we're going to go and we're going to do Impact Eagle River, which is a chance for us to go serve our community. The driving force behind that is not, I'm going to go work so Jesus loves me. It's not, I'm going to go work because I messed up a lot this week. I'm going to go work because I cheated on that test. That is not the motivation. The motivation is Christ has paid for my life in full. And that's what motivates me to go and to serve him, to serve our city. You see, if we do these things for any other reason, we're going to get lost. And so don't lose the ABCs, but mature on to greater things. And that maturity, you know what it looks like? It means acting out the ABCs. It means living this stuff out. Verse 3 says this, In this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Scary passage, right? There's a lot going on there. Who's he talking about? I mean, that's the first question, right? Is this me? I mean, you've got to be asking yourself, am I the person in this passage? Which I think is a good question. It's a good question. But he's not just talking about a temporary lapse of judgment. He's not talking about... Brian, am I this guy because I've had kind of a dry prayer time? I feel like when I'm praying, God's not talking to me. Am I this girl because I didn't read my Bible last week and I know I should, you know? He's talking about people who have tasted the goodness of God and they've gotten just enough to be dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, I know just enough about electricity to be dangerous. That's, That's me. Wired in some outlets this past week, you know? So like, just enough to be dangerous. That's a scary place to be. He's talking about the kid that plays, you know, Call of Duty all night long and thinks that they're a Navy SEAL, right? Like, oh yeah, I can play Call of Duty. I'm totally, I could, I could go into battle. I could deal with that. Yeah, give me a gun. You know, I mean, he's talking about the people that have convinced themselves that they're okay. They've tasted just enough of the goodness of God to satisfy them, but not enough to motivate them to want more. You know what I mean? Have you ever been there, or maybe you know somebody who's at that place, and they've experienced just enough. These were the people that followed Jesus for a quick meal. And then as soon as Jesus said, hey, this is going to cost you everything, they bailed, and they were out of there. That's the kind of people he's talking about. And you guys, this is the most difficult person to reach. Like, the sad thing about this is if this person is you today, you are probably the person in this room that's least concerned about what I'm saying right now. That's just the reality of it. Like, if this is you, your heart has become hard, and, and, and you've slowly stopped caring about things that, that should matter in your life. I mean, this is one of the things, I pray for pastors that pastor down in the Bible Belt. Anybody from the Bible Belt? This is Bible Belt Christianity. It's like, hey, what do you do on Sunday? We go to church, right? That's what we do. What do you do on Sunday night? Going to prayer meeting, right? That's, I guess you're talking Southern drawl because you're in the South, right? So it's Bible Belt Christianity. There's nothing wrong with church in the South except for the fact that those pastors struggle. They struggle because church is so woven into the culture that people who show up think that that's all that it is sometimes. And certainly it's not everybody, but I'm telling you, there's a tendency to feel like, hey, I've checked it off my list. I'm good. I'm good. One of the hardest people to meet are the nominal Christians. The nominal Christians, the people who are like, yeah, I'd check the bubble, but it hasn't really changed my life. He's talking to that crowd. He's like, hey, your hearts are hard. You've tasted the truth, but it hasn't changed your life. And then he goes into this horticultural illustration about, you know, weeds and thorns and thistles and things, which is interesting. And, and we don't really get this. They were in an agricultural society. They got this a lot more than we do. I don't know if you're a farmer or not. But I was connecting with this passage this week because um, I'm a yard guy, love my yard, uh, totally a, a lawn addict, and I like to mow my yard, and then I like to turn and mow it the other way to get the crosshatch. Am I alone in that? Yeah, we got some sweet, awesome. We got a few people with me. So I know it's a sickness, it's, it's, uh, or it means I'm old. Is it I'm old? So anyway, I love my yard, and I had this section in my yard where, where it was all like grown up with weeds and stuff, and I'd mow it because it kind of looked better when you mowed it, but it was still really nasty. So I got the weed and feed, and I read the back of it, and it said, yeah, I'm gonna, it'll, it'll kill all the weeds, and it'll leave the grass. And I said, that's what I want. So I sprayed it all on there, and I came back a couple days later. Do you know what I had? Dirt. I had dirt. There was nothing left. And, I, and I'm like, oh, did I put the wrong thing on there? So I went and looked. Did I get the ground kill or whatever? And nope, it was weed and feed. You know what the problem was? There's just no grass. There's nothing there. It's just nothing but weed. So we started over. What's growing in your life? I wonder for you, and I was just thinking about this. If you pulled out all the weeds in my life, would there be anything left? Would there be anything of value? That's what he's talking about here. 
in this passage. Let's do things of value. Let's show people what Christ is like. Verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. This is the hopeful part. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I love this. This is where it all kind of comes together. He wants you to be earnest for hope, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitating the faithful, so that you'll inherit the promises. It's a really interesting thing going on in this passage. He wants you to be earnest for hope. Are you earnest for hope today? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, no, it's been a good day. Just started. Got my coffee. Things are okay. Made it to church. You know? I mean, life's pretty good. Some of you are not earnest for hope. I would say that in my life. Sometimes I'm not earnest for hope. I'm just cruising along. Life's going okay. I just hope that nothing goes wrong, right? Until something does, and I realize that my hope wavers. And I realize I have hope in all kinds of circumstantial things. I want a foundational hope, a hope that doesn't change with my circumstances. I think we all at our core want this. I think we all have had experiences where we put our hope in something else and it failed us. And we know that, no, we need hope in something that never changes, something that doesn't go away. And so he says that that desire, that desire for hope is the fuel for an active life. It's a fuel for an active life. It's the thing that causes you to move forward. It's the thing that causes you to work through sluggishness. Come on, we're lazy sometimes. We don't want to do the work. We don't want to put in the time. And that desire for hope causes you to be active. Now, how does this work together? How does being active in the kingdom of God correlate with hopefulness? Because if, if I'm honest, when I want hope, I just stand here and say, God, would you just download hope into my head? Like, could you just inject hope into me? I just want to feel hope. Could you make my circumstances better? Could you give me this, this thing I want or take away this thing that I don't want? That's going to give me hope. And what he's challenging here that is so cool, you guys, this is really important because as it all works together, we're going to see that this life, is, it's, it, all, it all connects. It's so cool. Is that, that that desire for hope causes you to serve. And when you serve and when you love people, when you act like Jesus to the world, you know what you're going to feel? Hope. It's interesting. There's something in us that, that when we go and we act out what Christ has done in us, when we act out the gospel, that we experience hope. It doesn't just come as a download, you know. It comes through going and doing and seeing what, what it really looks like for God to work in this world. And all of a sudden, we get a little more hopeful. There's this, uh, this picture that's been shared around on the news and the internet lately. of uh, It's like a paper plate with a note on it from a cabin that got broken into. Have you guys seen this? So it was somewhere here in Alaska, and these guys were in a raft, I think, and um, flipped the raft, and they, they saw this cabin, and so they, they went into the cabin and uh, got themselves dried off and left a note that said, hey, to the homeowner, we're, we're so sorry for using your cabin. We didn't think we could make it another night. We drank some water and ate a little bit of food. Here's $40. Um, and this picture has gone viral, and, and in all the comments, what you read is, yeah, that's why we leave our cabin unlocked. We just let people come into it. Like, if they need it, we let them come into it. And other guys that are like, yeah, I should do that. That makes a lot of sense. People are, people are in need, and so we should help them when they're in need. And, you know, we should just, maybe we could trust humanity again, you know, and somebody else is like, yeah, right, I never lock my door. Let me just rip me off, right? And so there's this conversation going on that people are connecting with that. They connect with this hopefulness, this, this desire to put faith in human beings and to believe that people can do the right thing. And there's something in human nature that is drawn towards that. Again, I think it's the fingerprint of God right on us, showing us that through God, things really can be better. And so we want to be people who are making progress, but progress always means the potential for pain. Progress always means a potential for pain. This is the hard part. This is the bad news is it's going to hurt sometimes. 
If you're going to step out, if you think, Brian, yeah, there's some areas in my life that clearly I need to lean into, some things that I've been ignoring, some ways that I've been passive, um, I need to do some work. I want to tell you that there will be opposition. The lie that everybody wants to believe, here's the lie, is that you can get something for nothing. You can get the car without the payments. You can have the marriage without the pain. You can have the children without the discipline. I mean, that's the lie. We worship comfort, and so we don't want pain. But progress is going to mean pain. Anybody who's ever been to the gym knows that, right? Progress takes pain. It hurts to move forward. In fact, as we look at Jesus... It's interesting. He comes out of his 40 days of fasting. He's tempted by Satan. He gets on this rooftop with Satan himself. And what we read is that Satan said, look at at all of this. He said, basically, it's like the Simba. All of this can be yours. You know, like, he's like, look at this land. All of this can be yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to know pain. You can have everything. All you have to do is worship me. All you have to do is bow down to me. This is how Satan works. And so if Satan goes to the Son of Man, and this is how he tempts him, he tempts him with a life of ease, a life without pain, I have to look at my life and think, maybe that's how God's going to tempt me. Maybe God's going to tempt, or not God's going to, Satan's going to tempt me, is, is with, a, with a life without pain. Because that's how I work. That's what I want, is a life without pain. And yet we look at Jesus and we see Jesus described as a man of sorrows, a man familiar with pain, a man who goes through struggle. And when Jesus is active in his faith, he experiences opposition. He experiences pain. People will oppose you. I mean, get ready for it. People will oppose you when you step forward. When you get the promotion at your job, people will oppose you because you're actually working hard at what you do. They're they're, they're jealous I mean, people will feel excluded, like, hey, we used to be over here. We were, you know, poking fun at the guy that was working hard, and now you're working hard. So we're not together anymore. They'll feel excluded. You'll mess up the curve, right? If you really engage yourself in the life that's around you, you're going to screw up the curve for somebody. And they're not going to like that. Hey, I'm over here, you know, playing Halo, and you're working. This is, <laughs> this is a problem. This isn't looking good for me. Or you'll experience opposition from yourself. You'll doubt yourself. Some of you guys will feel God say something to you in church today, and your response to that will be to go out after church and distract yourself. Can I just go eat some good food? I just need to go get a cold beer. I just need to go do something. I need to go for a bike. I need to do something to get my mind off of this. Can I just distract myself for just a few minutes so I don't have to deal with what's going on in my head? Opposition. Or you might, you might even undermine your own efforts. You might try to do things halfway and then look later and go, see, it didn't succeed. See, it never works. You see, I can never overcome that issue. You see, that part of my life will never get better. There's no reason to try to change things. You see, I didn't succeed. This is the journey that we're all on. But you guys, when we become active, that's when, when it becomes real because active faith is real faith. I'm going to close with this. Active faith is real faith. You can't have faith if it's not active. In Hebrews 11, we read this whole chapter, and people call it the Hall of Faith. And it's all about the patriarchs of the faith, these people who have chosen to be faithful to God in difficult circumstances. And when it says, by faith, they did something, it was always connected to activity. It's always connected to something they did. It's by faith they acted this way, not by faith they just felt faithful. It's by faith they acted faithfully. And so this is what it looks like, you guys. If you want real faith, it's going to take getting active. It's going to take not being passive, not being aggressive and freaking out, but just choosing carefully how to move forward. And this is how God works. So we look to Jesus, and, and this, is, this is awesome. I, if I look at Jesus, I see this at work in a beautiful way. I see Jesus being active through pain. I see him pursuing me through struggle, counting the cost, but carefully and actively pursuing all of humanity. And so I start to feel sorry for myself. I start to feel like, ah, I don't like that I'm experiencing pain. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can make it through. But Jesus is the ultimate sign that no matter how passive 
we become, or no, or no matter how, how much we struggle, that Jesus will continue to show his love to us. We read this, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, have you not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So God, the perfect father, if you're going through pain right now, if you're going to walk forward, I think God's going to work in you in that. Some of that may be discipline. Some of that may be God teaching you something. But he's going to walk with you through it. And so here in a minute, we're going to take communion. And we do this every week as a church. And one thing I want to remind you is that communion is a reminder of pain. It's a symbol of pain. It's juice that represents the blood of Christ. It's little crackers that represents the broken body of Christ. And so as you come up today, if you're a believer in Jesus, we'd welcome you to come up and receive communion. But don't just come up without considering what is it in your life that you need to walk through? Where's the pain? Where's the struggle? Where's that thing that you've been ignoring for a really long time, but it's time to be done with it? It's time to walk forward through it. It's time to give it to Jesus. And whatever that thing is, I want you to have that in your mind, and I want you to picture yourself coming forward and leaving that at the altar, leaving that at the feet of Jesus and saying, you can have it. I'm done. And so as you receive this today, we'll be celebrating. Sometimes we take communion with, with uh, upbeat music, and it's a celebration of the life of Christ and what he's done for us. And it's a celebration as we let go of those things and as we move on. And if you're here today and you know you've been resisting Christ for a while, maybe you're not a believer yet. You haven't made a decision to follow him. You've said, hey, I see God working. I think he's doing something real right here in our city, and I want to be a part of it. Would you just pray with me right now? Let's all bow our heads. Just pray this with me. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that in my life I've been passive about dealing with this, dealing with my sin and walking forward in faith. And so today I want to make a commitment to you. Today I want my life to be changed. I want to exchange my sinfulness for your righteousness, my apathy, my passive nature, or my aggression for your activity and your goodness. I trust that you can save me. I trust that you love me. I ask for your help when I mess this thing up. And I ask that you'd walk me through what it looks like to live out the life and the mission of Jesus. And for the rest of us in this room, God, I pray that we could, we could worship from this place, understanding the pain of Christ, understanding what was paid for us, considering our lostness without him, and then considering how saved we are because of him. So I pray that that would come out in our lips as we sing. That would come out of our hands as we raise them. It would come out in the way that we respond as we sing in a few moments, God, because you are so good and you do deserve our best. Thanks for Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.